AD&D First Edition introduced weapon specialization in Unearthed Arcana. The only classes that could benefit from this ability were the Fighter and the Ranger. AD&D Second Edition scaled this back to only fighters, yay, until the PHBR series, maybe accidentally, probably accidentally, extended weapon specialization back to Rangers, boo, and then also extended it to Paladins. Why do those goody-two-shoes get more stuff? But none of this applied to BECMID&D, where fighters could become skilled, experts, masters, and grandmasters with weapons, yay! But so could everybody else, boo. Fighters never get to play with their own toys by themselves. I think it's terrible. I'm main a fighter. I'm gonna go pout in the corner now. Oh god, what the hell? And now we present you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. While we both love lots of RPGs, D&D is the game that makes us sad when we don't get to play. Hi, I'm Ange, and I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnomecast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. And in 2021, they put me in charge of the whole thing, so you can blame me for anything. <laughs> and I'm Jared. I'm the review gnome at Gnome Stew, and I've been gaming since roughly 1985. Uh, in addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. So if you don't like my opinions, you can blame me. <laughs> All right. So today, after we look at the games that we're running in the campaign journal or not running, as the case may be, we'll be looking at two really big playtest documents from both Cobalt Press and Wizards of the Coast. Then we'll have some recommendations of D&D related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. So Depths of Zendrick is on break, but that doesn't mean I'm not playing a campaign or thinking about running D&D. One of my regular Saturday games is my buddy Scott's Undermountain campaign, where I'm playing Selena Marivaldi, a Battlemaster fighter. I tend to take a bit of a backseat in that campaign for a couple of reasons. Scott meanders a bit as a GM, and some of the players can get a bit mountain out of a molehill fixated. So I will often just sit back and let them debate rather than trying to be super proactive and keeping the game moving <laughs> forward, because if I did that, I know I'll get frustrated, so it's better if I just have a more casual, <laughs> you know, like, I'm enjoying hanging out with my friends and having Selena be a badass and, you know, take on the fight. I have had games like that. Yeah, and it, it like, I love all these people, and Scott has gotten to be a really good GM. It's just, I still, like, I'm very much, you know, get to the effing monkey. <laughs> yeah. The game that is supposed to be replacing my Depths of Zendrick Saturday game is the revival of Tristan's City of Cows campaign, which I have talked about in the past here. Unfortunately, as is the want of gaming groups everywhere, we're running into scheduling difficulties. He wants us all to be there for the reopening of the campaign for very important reasons. We kind of ended at a cliffhanger. Very important stuff is going on in the world. He has something planned for each of us. He really doesn't want anyone left out for that, which is completely understandable. We were going to be playing this Saturday, but unfortunately, one of our players has a family medical emergency that is taking them away. Completely understandable. Our next opportunity to play would have been Memorial Day weekend, which another of the players has somebody coming in from out of town. And as he said, he can't exactly have this person come from another state <laughs> to stay with him and then leave for yeah. several hours to play games. 
Um, so at this point, considering that in June, one of the weekends we would play is, is I'm going to be at Origins. <laughs> um, we are looking at pausing on starting up the City of Cowles campaign until maybe later in the summer and do a shorter, small campaign in the meantime. Because Tristan has a different game he wants to try running. So I'm really, really anxious to start playing Dove again. <laughs> but it's not. Prospects are not looking good. Yeah. In other news, speaking of Origins, <laughs> I made a trade with a friend for that specific weekend in June. Uh, where she will run a game for me if I run a game for her teens and one of their significant others. Um, the significant other is new to RPGs, uh, but is also curious about D&D and fantasy. And because they are a bit anxious and worried that they'll do it wrong mm -hmm. when it comes to playing RPGs, which we all know is not possible, <laughs> but other people treat it like it's possible. So we don't want them to get harassed by anybody for being shy and mm -hmm. unsure of themselves. So uh, my friend is looking at lining up a couple of different games for the kids with GMs she trusts. Um, and since the significant other is interested in D&D, &D, um, I am looking at putting together a one-shot D&D game for these kids. Um, kind of inspired by uh, the D&D &D movie, <laughs> the new one, the good one. Um, <laughs> the, the new good one, yeah. <laughs> the new good one. Uh, without uh without ripping it off wholesale so we'll, we'll see we'll see we'll see how i do this i'm not worried about my friend's kids her kids have been playing role-playing games for years at this point and they're both they're both seasoned mm -hmm. seasoned gamers um i'm also looking at starting up a once a month in-person game with some of my local friends to get some facetime mm -hmm. happening uh in our gaming because everyone kind of miss misses gaming in person but you also can't beat the convenience of gaming online yeah. so we're, we're looking at some sort of compromise there and i'm looking at using the keys from the golden vault as my framework but and here's where i may make some people mad who are listening to this podcast <laughs> i'm thinking of possibly running it with savage worlds for a change of pace you know if you wanted to go full heretic in context of the uh of the podcast you could look at getting the uh pathfinder for savage worlds to run away <laughs> i i actually have that that's probably what we use as the backbone but oh goodness so i also have not been running games unfortunately in our midgard campaign we're still waiting to finish up our magical mystery tour or in other words our storyline where the pcs are traveling the planes <laughs> um uh They've been to all the nice places, so now we have the Evermaw and the Eleven Hells and the Prison of Eternal Torment left on their tour. <laughs> yeah, we, we we I mean it made sense to go to Valhalla first, <laughs> but at the same time it might have been nice to save something pleasant. <laughs> I mean, actually I don't know that I can call Valhalla pleasant, but uh something not as dangerous and threatening <laughs> on, for the end, but but yes, once uh, once we wrap all of this up, hopefully they will be freeing Ivy's patron, Lady Iyer, a Valkyrie that's been kidnapped. Um, this is kind of the middle section of the campaign and where I'm trying to work some of the PC's backstories, not just into adventures, but to also tie that back into like the plot critical elements that I kind of thought about when I you know started mapping out the campaign to begin with. 
Um, some of that's been a little bit more obvious, like, you know, Marin getting to appoint the members of his family after the corrupt members of his house got deposed. But some of it is tying in some ongoing storylines that the PCs haven't quite seen yet. And there are still some <laughs> connections that may not be quite as obvious. Um, it's been a while since the PCs talked to their boss. And I mean, actually, in game, it's been about two months, but it's been way longer in real life. <laughs> Uh, the last they talked to their boss, uh, she was heading out for the Morza, which is the Council of Dragons that rules the uh, Marodi Empire. And essentially, the only thing that they've heard about that meeting so far is that she did not get control of the prison after they liberated it. It's still being held by the uh, the Morza as a kind of a jointly held asset, and they have not really heard anything else of the consequ the political consequences that may have come out yet. When it we really should have burned it to the ground. <laughs> When it comes to the Saturday game, um, the next session we've got, um, are, we're going to have newly minted second level characters ready to face combat. And I think I'm going to be using a lot of minions from the Flea Mortals playtest just to get them used to combat so that they're not in too much danger. And I think I'm going to take a page from 13th Age. They started off deciding that they wanted to find the Eye of Vecna at first level. And I think the dungeon where the Eye of Vecna is located is going to be a living dungeon, which means it's actually a living mass that moves from place to place. <laughs> and I think once they get through the dungeon, I would kind of like the dungeon to kind of convince them that maybe the Eye is safer staying in this living dungeon than it is, you know, handing it over to a bunch of mortals to give to a wizard who I'm sure only wants to have the Eye of Vecna to keep it safe. <laughs> that guy's already preparing to He's already got his melon baller ready to scoop out his eye. <laughs> he kept telling them repeatedly, don't put it in your eye socket. And everyone kept going, why would I even think to do that? <laughs> so I'm probably going to throw some gooey bioorganic traps at them once they go into the dungeon, just to kind of clue them in on the idea that this whole dungeon is a living complex that just seethes under the ground and moves from place to place. Oh. <laughs> But that's all of my planning that I have going on. But hopefully I'll get to actually run a game this Saturday. Yay! <laughs> Moving on to our Dungeon Master's Workshop. Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Workshop. Because the playtest documents we're going to be looking at are super chunky, we haven't run playtests for either of them yet. Um, but we still wanted to touch on the highlights of these documents this time around. Um, but it's mostly going to be uh, like an overview type of thing. And I'll be completely honest, I've skimmed them. Jared has read them. So a lot of this is going to be me asking Jared questions. <laughs> so let's start with the Cobalt Press playtest first. Uh, it is the third playtest of Tales from the Valiant, which was their Black Flag project. It's, listen, if anybody from Cobalt Press is listening to this, <laughs> you gotta get better with your links. Because if I go to your website and I look up Tales from the Valiant, it should be linking to these playtests on that page. And it doesn't. It's it's I mean, the stuff you're coming up with is interesting and I'm I'm excited, but you gotta get a little a little more Yeah, I, a little more I wish there was a consolidated page for all of the playtest downloads. Yeah, yeah. So um in this latest document, they have shifted from player facing mechanics to give a sneak peek at some of the changes they may want to make to the way monsters are presented, and they've given us a forty one page playtest document with Almost 60 stat blocks. So, Jared, what are some of the highlights of this new stuff in there? 
All right. So one of the big things that they are doing is they're doing a little bit more with tags. You already see tags on some monsters in 5e anyway. That's the sort of thing like, for example, Shape Changer isn't a monster type, but it is a subtype that gets you know put on some monsters. They want to use um, these tags to help kind of, you know, have some stickiness to the rules. And one of the examples that, Ew, sticky. yeah, <laughs> one of the examples they give is if a, if a monstrosity, for example, has the animal tag, you might be able to use things that will affect an animal on that monstrosity. Like speak with animal. Exactly. Um, so I kind of like that as kind of a bridging mechanism. You know, this thing isn't natural, but it also behaves like an animal. So mm -hmm. it's kind of neat, you know, to use it in that way. Um, some of the other things that they're looking at is there are no alignments in any of the stat blocks, but they do have things like lawful and chaotic and evil and good as tags. But I have thoughts on this when we get yes. to it. Um, now, when they get to hit points, they do not list the hit dice or the constitution bonus that the monster gets anymore. They just give you the hit points. And a lot of this is to try and make the stat block a little bit more streamlined. And I have thoughts on this, too. Um, <laughs> They have added a stealth line for monsters where there is just a set DC for detecting a monster when it's trying to sneak up on you. The ability modifier. Oh, or yes. Is it, is it the is it the DC for the for you detecting a monster sneaking up on you or for the monster detecting you sneaking up? No, on No, this is the DC for you to notice a monster sneaking up on you. OK, so technically, if the stat block stays this way. Um, and you're the DM, a lot of times you're not going to be rolling for that monster. There's just going to be a difficulty for how sneaky this thing is supposed to be, which I will say um, in some cases, I have been frustrated when I roll low for something that's supposed to be really sneaky. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not entirely against this, but we'll get into opinions again later. The ability modifier line, instead of putting the actual uh, ability score now, they're just going to put the modifier. But another thing that they're doing is, let's say you have a monster that may have strength-based skills that they're proficient with, or may be proficient with saves, on that line where it says strength, not only is it not going to say, like, strength 20 or whatever, it's just going to say, say, plus 7. But that plus 7 may include the proficiency bonus if, whenever it makes a skill check, it is likely to have proficiency in uh, strength skills, or if it is likely to have proficiency in strength save. That reminds me a little bit of how uh, Mutants and Masterminds handles the stats now, because they did away with the 3 through 20 plus range. It's just you have your modifier. Your mo you have a plus 2, you have a 0, you have a plus 3. Your Superman, you have a plus 13 or something like that. <laughs> yeah, Superman stats still look like a an actual D&D stat when you look at his bonus. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder Woman is still better at fighting, though. She has a better fighting stat. This is a tangent. We need to get back on track. <laughs> so, you know, that's one of the things they're doing with the ability modifiers. Doom is another new concept. What Doom is, is certain monsters will get Doom points. You can spend a Doom point to do the same thing that you would with Inspiration, for example. But also, some monsters have special abilities that they can trigger with Doom. And there's also an optional rule where if a player rolls a natural one... Any monster that has Doom would get an additional point of Doom. <laughs> so that could be an interesting thing to play with there. Damage on all of these stat blocks is now also represented by a set number. And it does not, you know, right now in 5th edition in the Monster Manual, it might say 1d8 plus 3 and then give you the average number. 
this is just going to give you the average number in the stat block. That's how much the attack is going to do. There is a separate chart that says if you do five points of damage on average, this is what you should roll, but it is not in the monster entry. So if you do want to do that, you're going to be referencing a separate chart if you want to roll for your damage instead of doing average damage. Another thing that they've done with a lot of monsters is a lot of them now have specific bonus actions. Now, some monsters had bonus actions before, but what a lot of these bonus actions do now is, for example, if you have a monster that is below, say, half of its hit points, it now it will say once once this creature is below 50 percent of its hit points, it has access to this bonus action. And for example, there's like some constructs that can start using bonus actions to repair themselves <laughs> once they uh, once they go below 50 hit points. Okay. That would be annoying. Of their hit point. Yeah. So it, it's really interesting to see um, some of the different bonus actions that they have given standard monsters that already exist in the rules. For example, like even the bandit stat blocks that they gave, they let the bandits get a little bit better. They kind of gave them the rogue ability where they can uh, use a bonus action to move away from somebody and do hit and run tactics. So that's the broad overview without getting into the individual stat blocks, which would take way too long. Yeah, yeah. So what are your, what are, you know, we've, we've shared a little bit of opinions, but what are some of your impressions of these rules? Um, okay, so I really like the tag idea with a slight caveat. When I look through a lot of the stat blocks, in my mind, the way they explained how they're going to use these tags, I like the idea that, you know, even like the horrible assassin that you're fighting may not have the evil tag because he is a terrible person, but he's not evil, evil. But a fiend is evil. So it will have this tag where it is really this evil thing. But in the actual stat blocks, they kind of assign them to some things where I wouldn't have assigned evil yeah. to them. Um, even what's weird to me is in the Midgard setting, dragons are not nearly as confined to their alignments as they are in the monster manual. And yet they can find most of their dragons to being evil in this playtest document. Which yeah. goes against their own setting a little bit. That was that was one of the things I did notice, and I'm like, wait a second, why is the black dragon evil? Why is the green dragon evil? I mean, like, I get that these are the chromatic dragons are traditionally the evil dragons, but I've never liked that because they're dragons. They're complicated. They're, yeah, it, they're, they're know, selfish they jerks, sure, but <laughs> they have a lot of motivations. Why is the evil tag on these dudes? Embrace yeah, I that. I think some of the tags, and it may just be that, you know, they're trying this out, so they might have gotten a little tag happy. But I would really like them to reserve that evil tag for things that are really supposed to be like, not just that they are not good things or that they're likely to be adversaries, but save it for something that really is evil. Like, if you're even if you're going to give it to a human, you don't give it to, like, an assassin. You give it to, like, a serial killer, somebody that really enjoys yeah. doing this creepy, you know, depraved thing. Um, yeah. And what's really funny is one of the demon stat blocks does not have the evil tag. Uh, <laughs> I think yeah. that was an oversight because I noticed like even hellhounds have the evil tag. So I don't think that that was an intentional thing there. But and I like the concept, too. Like you could have like mindless undead with the evil tag because they came from some horrible curse. You know, like I think there's mm -hmm. a lot of flexibility in using this as a tag instead of using it as literally an alignment. But I think they kind of overused it in their examples. Yeah, and and to be to be to put all of this in context, they are going to be doing a Kickstarter for Tales of the Valiant within the next month. 
I know it's the summer. I don't remember the exact. Yeah, it, it's coming relatively soon. Yeah. So they are probably putting a lot of their efforts into that, but still wanted to get out a playtest document because mm-hmm. you really do need to have. I mean, you really should have your ducks in a row before you go to Kickstarter. But they got a lot of things in the fire that they're working on. I don't mind them doing the hit points and damage the way they're doing, except I know I personally will turn the hit points up or down on monsters a lot. So I like knowing the minimum and maximum that these monsters can have and having to kind of reverse engineer how they got their hit points is not something I really want to do every time, you know, that I mess with them. Yeah. It's not bad for just, you know, if you're just going to pull it out of the book and use it as is. But, you know, if you're going to tinker any at all, sometimes it's better to see the math behind how it works. I don't think I've adjusted the hit points on anything that I've run within the last year or so, except maybe for the Medusa, because Mm -hmm. I gave her basically class levels as a sorcerer. Yeah. Um, But I actually really like the just here's the damage it does. Um, I know some people real like some GMs really like rolling the damage because sometimes you get a lot, sometimes you get a little, <laughs> but I have really just settled into for speed of running the game. Mm-hmm. It does 12 damage. You take 12 points of damage. Yeah. And I noticed like when I run through roll 20, I will roll damage because it's super easy to roll damage. It's as easy to roll damage as it is to roll to hit. Mm-hmm. But when I run face to face, I use average damage because I am juggling enough stuff as the DM. I don't necessarily need to roll extra dice when I know that, you know, that I can just use the average damage. Yeah. So I don't mind that per se. There is one thing I really wish they would do, though, if they're going to put average damage in there. And that is tell me how much a crit does. Yeah. Because technically, unless they redefine what crits are going to do, a crit does not just double their average damage because that average damage is going to have a modifier and a dice expression, and just the dice expression gets doubled. Yeah, that's true. I will confess, I kind of forgot about that. So when my <laughs> my stuff, my monsters roll a crit, it's basically, it's I'm just doubling the, the average damage. And honestly, I wouldn't be against just ruling something like that either. The thing that I was going to say too, though, is if you're running a straight 5e game, none of these changes would keep you from using these monsters. Right. That's a plus. It's definitely a plus, I think. It is a little bit different. It is a little bit streamlined, but it is not going to like there's nothing that is missing from the stat block where you would go. If I use this red dragon instead of the one out of the monster manual, how can I do this? Because it's all the stuff you really need is there. And if you're going to do tinkering, yeah, you would have been doing tinkering anyway. So there's some things I wish, you know, I kind of wish the dice expression was still there for hit points. I think that they need to reel back some of the tags, some of the descriptions of some sapient beings are very monoculture. Boy, these people are terrible. Yeah. Especially like the bugbear. I did like the flavor text they included in a lot of the descriptions mm-hmm. because I think some of that is missing from the monster manual as it exists. Like mm-hmm. some of the monsters get a blurb and some of them just get a stat blog and a picture. I like the little bit of flavor text. I think it was one of the oozes that I was like, ooh, I'd like to read that to my players. Oh, yeah. The crimson oozes are neat. <laughs> they're terrible but they're neat <laughs> well and what's funny is it's not universal either it's not like all the humanoids are said to be these horrible evil warlike people but it's like if you read the bugbear entry that one kind of paints all bugbears as being evil yeah but the goblins and hobgoblins actually had a pretty neat entry that didn't make them just seem like evil it actually gave them some cultural traits 
I wonder if that's a uh, another oversight, like tagging the some of the dragons as evil. It's interesting, but I mean, I think the document, I don't know. By the time this goes live, the uh, feedback form may be closed because I think it's only open until the 15th. But um, there's a lot of stuff I like in it. There's a lot of stuff that I don't think I would be super disappointed if everything went through. But I'm going to say something here, and I don't want this to sound bad. I feel like Kobold Press might be slightly in a better position to adjust based on feedback than Wizards is. Mm -hmm. Because at this point, Wizards looks like they're stacking design on top of design. And if they pull one of the blocks out, it's going to cause a lot of things to topple. Yeah. And I feel like Kobold Press is not doing that quite as much. So it's a little easier to correct if opinion goes against something. I also, I think because they are a smaller company, they may be able to better listen to the feedback. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think there's a little too much corporate stuff around wizards that I'm not sure they're hearing the feedback. Well, and it's also like a bigger company. I think, you know, this was just something that came up at my work before, but the analogy was, you know, sometimes steering a larger organization is like trying to uh, turn a aircraft carrier on a dime. You know, it's not something you can do very easily. <laughs> I had visions of that tanker stuck in the Suez Canal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so moving on, the most recent thing out of 1D&D is basically a playtest of 50 pages that is the Player's Handbook. It includes updated weapons, spells, and five classes. The Barbarian, the Fighter, the Sorcerer, the Warlock, and the Wizard. So let's start with our stabby things. What's up with weapons? All right. So all of the weapons in this new playtest have secondary effects that are called mastery properties. Any class that has access to mastery properties can use these additional effects on these weapons. Which makes me think they thought of it after they released the ranger, but there you go. We'll get to that because if the ranger doesn't get some of these, and maybe even I would be willing to say the rogue, I'm going to be a little upset. Because these are fighty people that, that should be able to use some of these tricks. Yeah, and some of this stuff is interesting. Yeah. But if it's like... Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. So if you have a weapon with the cleave property, you can attack a second creature nearby, but you don't get your bonus to damage from your ability score. If you have a flex weapon on a versatile weapon, for example, like a longsword where you can swing it one-handed or two-handed, Flex lets you use it in one hand as effectively as you could in two hands. Graze lets you do your ability score damage even if you miss. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it's basically it's such a big honking weapon that you're not missing a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> Nick is an interesting one because it lets you make an offhand attack without using a bonus action. If that sounds familiar, that's because they pulled that ability back out of the glossary and put it into this weapon property, which means rogues no longer have the ability to fight with two weapons without using their bonus action yet again. Yeah. Unless they somehow pick up weapon mastery. Push, it does what it says. When you hit someone, it also pushes them back. Does it also allow for knocking them to the ground? That is a different ability. Ah, because doesn't push as it exists now mean you can either push them back or knock them prone? Yes, that's the way it works in the uh, grappling. Okay. But for this, push just knocks them back 10 feet. Sap... If you hit someone, your opponent has disadvantage on their next attack roll if you hit. Slow takes 10 feet off their speed if you hit them. Topple will knock them prone if they fail a save. And Vex gives you advantage on your next attack if you hit with this one. It is kind of interesting because Vex is a good, like, 
hit someone and then follow up with another attack move. I really kind of like how some of these work, but that's what all of them are. So let's get into how we're feeling about these. Uh, some of these are very interesting, but they need to give them to the ranger and the rogue and yeah. maybe the monk. I'm betting the monk will get it because we haven't seen the monk yet, but the monk is a warrior class. Yeah. Since they're trying to create a special thing that each of their player character groups have, weapon mastery seems to be the special thing that they carved out for the warrior classes. For those keeping score at home, you might have noticed the only class they have not yet released of the original classes is the monk. Exactly. So I'm not super concerned about any of these. I don't think any of these will break a game. The only concern I have is that it might slow combat down a little bit mm -hmm. if somebody's not used to just saying, oh, yeah, and this, this pushes, you know, or they forget until halfway through someone else's turn and say, oh, they should be 10 feet back. But I think just on their face, all of these things feel interesting without being like massively game breaking. If I remember correctly, the fighters can change what they have mastery in on a long rest. Yes. How many times a day can they do these? This is just an additional effect that you have every time you hit with a weapon. Um, but yeah, which weapons you can do what with and where might change depending on your class. But, you know, if you can use the special property, you can use it every time you hit. So moving on from objects that can stab people, let's get to spells <laughs> that can stab people. So a lot of the spells in this document are class specific spells. Arcane casters are now going to get everything on the arcane list. But also, you might get a handful of wizard-only spells, or sorcerer-only spells, or warlock-only spells. And you cannot pick up a class spell with a feat. So in other words, you can take the feat that lets you learn spells from a particular overall list here in this playtest document. So you can get arcane, or primal, or divine, but you cannot get a class-specific spell. That's always going to be only by taking that class. So you're only going to get it if it's your class or if you multi-class into that class, that's the only way you're going to get these class-specific spells. I wonder how that's going to work for the... Uh, I mean, they need to release a new version of the Bard, but doesn't the Bard have Bardic Secrets or whatever it is that lets them get a spell, spell or two from another class? Yes. They have also mentioned that Dissonant Whispers is going to be a Bard-only spell. I don't know how I feel about that, but we're not talking about feelings yet. Um... <laughs> <laughs> It is a little strange to me that a lot of these spells are actually class features that are expressed as spells. Sorcerers get spells that have random damage type and exploding dice, and they also get a spell that lets them burn spell slots to self-heal. Warlocks, in particular, get packed cantrips that are actually the cantrips that give them access to their packed ability. So in other words, if you are packed to the blade, you get the packed to the blade cantrip that gives you your packed to the blade abilities. Why do they gotta do this? <laughs> And wizards can still scribe spells, but now scribing spells is not a class ability. Scribe spell is a spell that only wizards get. What? Why? Why? They also pick up a few other spells, like a spell that lets them modify an existing spell. So, for example, you can make a version of Fireball that does not have a material component. They also get a spell later on where they can spend a crap ton of money and make that a permanent spell that isn't just something that they've modified. It is something in their spell book that they can prepare from that point on. That's kind of interesting. That, that is. But yeah, a lot of these spells are interesting because they aren't just like, hey, here's a new spell. It is. Oh, wait, aren't these class features? What are your specific thoughts on these <laughs> class features? Oops, I mean spells. <laughs> so I'm going to start with the ones that I have the most positive feeling about. 
I kind of like the sorcerer one because the sorcerer ones are sort of these spells that almost feel like they are barely spells, but that kind of makes sense for a sorcerer. They're throwing out this half-formed glob of magic that could explode and that might get exploding dice and you don't know what damage type it's going to do. And I just have this image of my, in my head of a wizard watching a sorcerer cast that spell and just cringing because it's the sloppiest spell they have ever seen. <laughs> That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Exactly. And I actually kind of like those. They do what spells do. They do a type of damage or they let you burn their spell slot to heal yourself. They kind of feel like spells instead of class features, to me at least. And I do think they are playing into what they're trying to do with the sorcerer, which is just to say that you are just so naturally filled with magic that it just kind of oozes out of you. I do not like scribe spell as a spell. It is kind of ridiculous to me to turn a class feature that could just be a class feature into a spell. I don't get it. I don't understand it. <laughs> They're shifting so many of these terms. Like, I read through the sorcerer because I have a sorcerer. I'm very fond of the class. And I got mad when I saw it say, prepare spells. Because sorcerers do not prepare spells. Yes. Sorcerers just know it and they do it. And it makes wizards angry. <laughs> And if you look at what it's saying, how it works, it is no different from how it works in the past. But they changed the terminology, and I'm like, why? Prepare now is such a broad definition that it means either you picking the spells after a long rest or you picking the spells that you have to keep for the rest of your career, except for the one that you can switch when you level up. It means all of those things now. Yeah. There is no known spells and prepared spells. It is all just prepared spells. What what was wrong with that terminology that we have to change it? Just talking about the weirdness of wizards and turning scribe spell into a spell. It is weird to me, but it is a continuation of what they've been doing in this playtest, which is everything has to be defined and put in a box. I don't want to sound overly upset about that, but it is making it more difficult for me to relax and enjoy some of the stuff because it isn't just you get this class feature. It is you get a spell that is a class feature or you get a class feature that is expressed as a feat. It's everything has to be defined and compartmentalized and then slotted into a class instead of just being a class feature. It's a little frustrating to me. Speaking of frustrations, holy crap, warlocks. I don't know that I can even comment on the warlock only spells because I don't know that I can comment on the warlock because the warlock completely broke my brain. As I was saying before we started recording, I mentioned I thought, wow, the bard really pissed somebody <laughs> off because they screwed that class. And then the druid came out and I'm like, oh, what did a druid do to you? Wow. Did a warlock steal your lunch money? Because they really screwed this class over. When I read the playtest warlock, my first thought is that the 2024 playtest warlock is an invasive species that came in and murdered the 2014 warlock and took its place. <laughs> I don't know if we'll get into this, but I'm going to state it right now. I don't know how they can continue to say that this is going to be a backwards compatible version of D&D &D with them eviscerating the warlock like this, because there is no way you can play any of the warlocks I have played or gamed with over the last 10 years with this class. Let me put it this way. If someone asks a warlock, hey, could you use a short rest? And they say no, that feels pretty weird. Yeah. So um, let's quickly move on, because we're going to go long on this episode. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about our favorite rage monster. Tell us about the barbarian. 
All right. So barbarians get weapon master. They're one of the classes to get that. So if they have a weapon with one of those special properties, they can utilize it. It's probably a big axe. Probably, yeah. Rage is now dependent entirely on the barbarian's action. So it is still dependent on things like if you attack somebody or things like that. But also, if you have no other option, you can spend a bonus action to keep yourself mad. But you also <laughs> don't extend your rage if somebody does damage to you. It's all basically based on what you do. If you attack, if you put yourself in a better position, you at least still have to spend a bonus action to remind yourself that you're pissed off. I actually don't mind that. I don't mind that either. There are times where, you know, for whatever reason, the barbarian can't smash something's face on a turn and then they lose their, their rage and I, they got to waste another to keep it going. I and... don't know if my groups have been unique, but I have definitely had groups where somebody says, someone damaged me so I can keep my rage going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are you going to hit me with that fireball? Because I'm OK with that. <laughs> now, here's the change. Rage now lasts 10 minutes. Rage also allows you to make acrobatics, intimidation, perception, <laughs> stealth, or survival checks as a strength check using strength, which also means you get advantage while you're raging because you get advantage on strength checks while you're raging. I'm so angry. My muscles can see what you're doing over there. Yep. <laughs> Some of these make sense. Some of these make a lot of sense, but just the... The perception and the stealth? Yeah, I know. I'm like, I'm so angry no one knows I'm here. It's like Drax. Yes. It is totally like Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm going to stare at the ground. You better not let anyone know I'm walking on you. <laughs> I said when I first read this, this gives a new definition to strong eyesight. But <laughs> <laughs> Brutal critical now, instead of being an extra die, you just add your barbarian level to your damage. Which, actually, when you get higher level is a better deal. Yeah, yeah. Um, You get... Lower levels, it's like, okay, I'm second level. Here, I have two extra points of damage, which at second level is okay. Nothing to sneeze mm -hmm. at, but... Once you get to the phase where you have Reckless Rage, you actually get more hit points because as Reckless Rage works now, when you drop to zero, you pop back up with one hit point. And in the design document, they said, a lot of times that meant the Barbarian popped back up, someone else hit them, they drop back down again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So you get, you don't get a ton of hit points, but you get enough that you probably can handle getting hit once and do once. something. <laughs> Indomitable Might moves from 18th level down to 9th. Indomitable Might, just to remind you, since it was an 18th level ability and most people probably never saw it, your strength score is your minimum check on any strength-based ability checks now at 9th level. Which is going to at least be a 17 or an 18. Yeah. I mean, if you're 9th level... You probably have at least that 18 in strength now. Mm -hmm. Maybe even a 20. Yeah, I mean, it, 20 is not inconceivable at because you've had two feats that you could pick up by that point in time. Yeah. And then um, Primal Champion drops down to 18th level to make room for your Epic Boon stuff. Same thing they've been doing with all the classes. Yeah. So any opinions on our, 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 our favorite Barbie? I have a hard time picturing someone walking around for 10 minutes outside of combat in a rage. You've never hung around my brother. Good point. Good point. But I mean, I guess I'm picturing, you know, the, the you know, the, the old Norse, like biting your shield and, you know, yeah. shaking with rage and, you know, sitting there. I'm just, I'm actually picturing this because outside of combat, theoretically, then you're spending a bonus action, you know, every round reminding yourself you're mad. So you're like walking down the hallways of this dungeon going, damn it. <laughs> it really is my brother. <laughs> I know what they're doing. 
they want this bonus to benefit barbarians outside of just combat. Yeah. I kind of wish instead of doing what they're doing, they just let you spend a rage to have 10 minutes where you can do barbarian like skills with advantage. Yeah. Like you spend a rage and you remember your survival instincts. So you're that much better at tracking. I would rather do that than have strength based eyesight. My eye muscles are so strong. To be fair, they do try and say in the flavor text that basically your strength is creating the supernatural reserve of power. But that in and of itself kind of bugs me because then we're also moving to another class whose baseline is they are supernatural. Yeah. We already only have, what, two classes that aren't automatically magical? <laughs> if you look at the history of the Barbarian, that is like complete anathema to yeah. the, the first or second edition Barbarians who were basically like, you had trouble having a wizard and a Barbarian in the same party because... They were supposed to hate all magic supernatural stuff. And I realize there are plenty of barbarian subclasses that have supernatural elements, but at least if you wanted to play the guy that was just the angry, rage-filled barbarian without supernatural abilities, you could pick a subclass that didn't have supernatural abilities. The indomitable might thing is just, that's just wild to me. Because like we were saying, that's like all of your strength checks are like, you know, if you plan things right, I got a 20 on that. <laughs> Plus my proficiency bonus. Well, actually, you wouldn't get plus your proficiency bonus because the floor is your ability score. The lowest you can get on the roll is that 20. But that is still ridiculous, especially compared to like, I was worried they're handing out too much expertise with the expert classes. Mm -hmm. This is way more than expertise. (laughs) The funny thing is, though, there are things that could break a game with Indomitable Might. But even those two things, I don't think, make me look at the Barbarian and go, wow, this is a completely screwed up design. Yeah. It just kind of makes me go, that feels a little wonky. Maybe they need to rethink this and tweak a little bit. So uh, they included the Berserker subclass uh, as the single subclass they're providing in these playtest documents. Uh, What are some of the specifics of that subclass? So the best thing about the Berserker subclass now is no more exhaustion, which is... From almost everyone that I talked to, the main reason that nobody liked to play Berserker. Because Berserkers really are like your poor stereotypical barbarians. They're even better at raging. It's about as vanilla barbarian as you can get. Yeah, except that nobody wanted to get that automatic level of, of exhaustion when they raged. So no more exhaustion. Frenzy, now the first time that you hit someone, you get to roll a number of dice equal to your extra damage for being in a rage. On your first hit. It's the Barbarian sneak attack. There's nothing sneaky about it, though. Basically, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Surprise! Bam! (laughs) (laughs) Um, Everything else is mainly just kind of shuffling levels a little bit. Um, They made Intimidating Presence, where you can cause fear in people multi-target instead of just intimidating one. That makes sense. And it's a higher level ability anyway, so... Yeah, it's not like the dude in front of you is the only one who can see that you are really, really scary. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Thoughts, feelings on that one? I mean, I'd be way more likely to play this one now. Mm-hmm. It is a good baseline barbarian, especially like I was just talking about. If you want that that barbarian that doesn't have any supernatural abilities... He's just, a, just yeah. <laughs> an angry dude with, with anger management issues. I mean, I kind of I like the... Very much not a sneak attack, extra bonus damage. That That's kind of fun. Rolling dice is fun. So, I mean, I like what they did with the Berserker. I'm fine with it. So, uh, quick and dirty, what are the changes to the fighter? 
fighters can now take persuasion as one of their uh, one of their class skills, which I think is good. They are potentially party leaders, so this is something that fighters should have always been able yeah. to have because yes, I know for some people charisma is their dump stat, but a lot of times you can make a fighter who is the leader of the party. I mean, Roy in our in in um <laughs> order of the stat. Yep. I mean, Panis and Dragonlance. I mean, yes. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, second wind is multiple uses per long rest. There is actually a chart in the uh, progression showing how many second winds you get for a long rest. Weapon mastery, again, um, definitely not a surprise. Action surge changed to where now you can only action surge to attack, dash, disengage, or dodge. Why? I have thoughts. Weapon expert is something that fighters get later on that barbarians do not get. And what that is, is basically... All of the weapon expert traits that you get later in the fighter progression essentially let you either change what property your weapon has. So let's say your weapon has push and you would rather it have cleave. You know, you can decide, no, this has cleave. The later uh, expansions to weapon expert lets you pick two different traits to put on a weapon. You can still only apply one at a time, but once you hit someone, you, you know, you can decide which one you're using. I think that makes sense for mm -hmm. a fighter. They, yeah, like their whole thing, their whole shtick is that they are supposed to be the masters of combat. And if you want to be able to shove somebody. Yeah, it's basically showing that compared to the barbarian, you are using tactics. You are not just yes. using not sneak attack. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, indomitable, which is your, you know, your thing that lets you get a save um, when you're in a difficult position where you get it to uh, reroll that save. You now add your fighter level. Do that save that you get to reroll. I could have used that last week. Yeah. I don't mind this because Indomitable is once per long rest. Yeah. Um, so I don't really mind giving someone that huge, you know, bonus to that. Um, we've already covered some of our feelings on this. Mm -hmm. Uh, but anything else you want to say on No, I the only thing that I don't like about this redesign of the fighter is I don't like limiting the action surge actions that you're allowed to take yeah i know they're kind of doing the same logic that they use with rogues because you know rogues can only do a sneaky roguish things with their with their bonus ability but this action surge to me feels different than what rogues do action surge is the fighter is an action hero yes and sometimes i feel like that action hero that gets that rush of adrenaline to do an extra thing does an extra thing that isn't obvious and when you constrain what they can do with that action you're kind of taking away some of the creativity that your action hero fighter might come up with. Because it's supposed to be an action. You get to take an additional action. The subclass they included for the fighter is champion. I wanted to see Battlemaster, but there you go. Uh, <laughs> the champion has been stated by Jeremy Crawford as intentionally the most straightforward subclass in the game, i.e. the most vanilla. So is there anything that has changed in this playtest? So instead of Remarkable Athlete, where you're really good at strength-based skills, now the champion can switch their skill proficiencies on a long rest so that they're always... The the way they explain this is you're so competitive that when you, you put your mind to it, you can be good at anything because you're a champion. They really are a jock. Yeah, um, I have feelings. I'll get to those in a minute. Um, your additional <laughs> fighting styles move up to 6th level instead of 10th level, so okay. Once per combat now, you can give yourself inspiration or heroic uh, advantage or whatever they decide to call it when the 2024 24 rules get here, because we'll probably have about five or six other names by that time. 
And also now your survivor trait gives you advantage to death save. That's that's pretty cool. It makes sense for a trait yeah. called survivor. <laughs> so share your feelings, Jared. Tell us what you really think. I'm still not excited about the champion. I know it's supposed to be the simplest subclass, but being the simplest subclass also makes it also one of the most boring. Yeah. I do kind of have a problem with even trying to say that they are a champion. Therefore they are driven to Excel. It still feels weird to me. If you make like an eight intelligence fighter and you can wake up being trained in Arcana. Yeah. Like, I feel like if you have a skill trained, maybe letting you switch to another skill that uses that same ability score but also they want this to be a super simple class to you. Yeah. I, I'm not sure I like the skill switching. Yeah. Because it just doesn't quite make sense. No, because even with Champion, I, I know they want to move it away from just being about physical things, but it's it just a, feels weird. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a fighter. Generally speaking, one of their lowest stats is going to be either Int or Wisdom or Charisma. Being able to like choose one of those skills as a proficiency is like, no, I just don't, I just don't buy it. Yeah, it's, it's, it is definitely a subclass that exists for the fighter. That is my take on the champion. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's move on to my favorite class or one of my favorite classes, the sorcerer. Um, it is one of the classes that in the current edition is heavily invested in their subclass story from the jump gate, uh, like right away at level one you choose what kind of sorcerer you are. Now, the sorcerer doesn't get its subclass till third level. So what does this class look like now? So first off, don't worry too much when you see the word prepared. They just repurpose what it means. You know a certain number of spells naturally, and you can only swap out one spell when you gain a level. So you are not like the wizard. You don't know every, you know, you don't know every spell that you run across. You're not super flexible. You have a limited subset of magic that you can naturally do. That has not changed. However, by the time you reach 20th level, instead of having 15 spells that you know, you will now have 22 spells that you know. Do you get more castings per day? I don't think so. I think the actual progression of number of spell slots is the same. Because that's one of the things that's bothered me a little bit about the 2014 version mm -hmm. is 3.0, 3.5. One of the advantages of having a sorcerer was that you got to cast your spells more often. Than a wizard, and then I realized after playing a sorcerer and playing a wizard that they're pretty much about the same, especially when you factor in sorcerers having sorcery points mm -hmm. that can be turned into spells and wizards basically getting their yeah. their arcane recovery on a short rest. It's like, wait a second, I'm supposed to be able to do more with my <laughs> magic. They're supposed to be the ones that's flexible and focused. <laughs> and I'm like, I just blow things up. Why can't I blow things up more often? That's probably a losing fight for me at this stage since they've <laughs> been doing it since 2014. So you'll notice I'm not mentioning a lot of class abilities. That's because most of the things that are class abilities are basically saying at this level, you get this new sorcerer only spell for free that doesn't count against your prepared spells, which is your known spells. Yeah. We already talked about that. Um, they did move Sorceress Restoration down to 15th from 20th to make room for the boons. However, one other new high level thing is at 18th level, you have access to Wish, and you can just cast it every time you get a long rest. What? <laughs> What's funny is, for all the other capstone abilities, I mean, I guess you can cast a ninth level spell every day anyway at that level, but it is really interesting, though. True. And they're basically saying that is this expression of you can just manifest magic because you kind of are magic. 
<laughs> yeah, I suppose I can be argued into that one being making some kind of sense. Mm-hmm. But it's still like I, I compare that to the um the clerics, uh the clerics divine intervention ability they have that's like you have a percentage chance of your god being like, okay, I'll help you out here. Yeah. <laughs> so um thoughts on this modified sorcerer. The sorcerer is probably my favorite one from this playtest. Part of that is I think they did a good job of even though, you know, I was even thinking I don't this is one of those ones that I didn't like them switching the subclass going from first level to third level just so that everybody was at third level. But I think they did a good job of shifting the story a little bit to where they're still saying your sorcery still has an origin that manifests at third level. But before it manifests, you just start manifesting magic that you can almost not control. I'm kind of okay with that as a substitute for you getting that origin, because it's not saying that your magic doesn't come from that origin. It's just kind of saying that you don't start looking more dragonish or, you know, eldritch horrorish or whatever until third level. And until then, you're just throwing off these spells that could explode in much more spectacular fashion than you expected. Yes, that can make sense. And I, I, I could see having fun with those first two levels of being like, I don't know how I can do this. I just do it. <laughs> This does make me wish, though, and we're, we'll get into this as we start talking about the subclass they included. I wish they had included the Wild Magic subclass instead of the Draconic subclass. I actually kind of agree. <laughs> so tell us about the Draconic subclass. All right. So um, the this version of the Draconic subclass, you get better armor class because it's based on your dex and your charisma. Yes. Which kind of makes sense. If you're going to be part dragon, you should probably be able to uh, you know bounce weapons off of your hide. They did change... To where you can communicate with dragons, but you do not know Draconic and you don't get advantage on communicating with dragons anymore. Mm. You can intrinsically just kind of use magic to communicate with dragons, mm. but you don't know the language. Um, you get your resistance for your Draconic type without spending any sorcery points. So that's not going to be a drain on your sorcery points anymore. That's good. That's good. You don't scare people anymore, so you don't get the Draconic aura that scares people. But... Your cantrip that you can shoot off that, you know, explodes into a random damage type and can explode with exploding damage dice that now turns into a breath weapon. And when you use it as a breath weapon, it turns into a cone and it has automatically the damage type for the type of dragon that you pick. And now instead of getting real wings, you get wings that manifest or, you know, turn on and off that are made out of the element that you pick for your dragon type. So. I guess if you're a green dragon, uh, descended sorcerer, you get big liquidy wings made of poison. I mean, I don't hate this. I, I think it probably makes more sense for like, you know, the electricity or the fire. Yeah, I picked the, one of the more ridiculous uh, ways to visualize it. Yeah. But the other thing that these wings can do now is they do like a passive amount of damage to enemies that are near them. Yeah, I don't I don't hate that. So what's your vibe on this? I don't mind this one. Um. I think it works fine. It doesn't super excite me. I do kind of miss that the wings aren't real because we are moving to a lot of class features that don't ever permanently change you. They just turn on when you need them and go away when you don't. And I think that does kind of change some of the story of somebody changing over time where it's just always this thing that's beneficial and easy to deal with. Yeah. I mean, overall, it doesn't bother me. I actually kind of like that they don't speak Draconic because it does feel more magic-y and mysterious that you can just communicate with dragons but you don't actually understand their language yeah i do think that maybe you should still get the advantage 
to interacting with dragons though because that's that still feels like something that would go along with that just natural magic connection to them that shouldn't have been overpowering for anything no because if a red dragon's going to want to eat your face you're not going to talk it out of it no <laughs> no if you want to talk a fairy dragon into showing you a secret passage yeah you should probably get some benefit for that yeah so um i i'm given to understand that they included a completely brand new class with this playtest yeah and they called it a warlock <laughs> what the warlock looks like you get medium armor proficiency now which you didn't get before you do not get your patron until third level and storyline wise what they are saying you dabble and maybe make minor packs with minor spirits here and there up until you get to third level when you make a big giant pack with a specific thing so your invocations maybe don't come from your patron they might come from some other source so as a warlock your story is now that you have made lots of deals and one big deal mm. also you do not pick your patron at first level but you do pick a pack boon your pact boon now gives you a specific cantrip for each of those packs. So you have a cantrip that gives you the abilities of the pact of the blade, pact of the uh, of the tome, or the pact of the chain. So, for example, the pact of the chain, you get a specific cantrip, a cantrip that lets you summon a familiar that is actually kind of a little bit better than the familiar that other people get. As an example, the ability your uh, pact of the blade lets you you know, uh, enchant a specific weapon that you have that works pretty darn good if you're going to be a melee uh, warlock. You don't get any spell slots that come back when you take a short rest. In fact, you don't get the quirky warlock thing where you just have spell slots of a single spell level that you get back on a short rest. You now have the half-caster progression that rangers and paladins get. At 11th level, you can contact your patron which is basically a contact other plane where you can just talk to your patron and ask them questions or, you know, ask things that are going on. They said they kind of wanted that as a counterpoint to the uh, cleric being able to ask their god for things. Although it's a little weird that the warlocks is more dependable than the clerics. Yeah. <laughs> and all the way at 18th level, you can cast Hex without using a spell slot. Wee. That thing that you want to do a lot of times to do extra damage, you finally get to do it without a spell slot at 18th level. <laughs> so let's get into the hard part here. Let's talk about our feelings about the warlock, because I have feelings. So what's really weird to me is it feels like they took the complaints of people that were playing a melee-based warlock, they rebuilt the warlock to work for people that were doing a melee-based warlock, and broke it for anyone else that was using Warlock. I mean... Because the new the new version of Pact of the Blade works a lot better because before you basically had to take the Hexblade patron along with Pact of the Blade in order to really be an effective melee Warlock. Now you really just need to take Pact of the Blade. And it kind of makes sense that if you're going to be a melee Warlock, you would be a half-caster. Because that is kind of in the same territory as a Ranger or a Paladin. As I said earlier, this breaks any pretense of being backwards compatible. We have a warlock in my City of Cowls game. Mm -hmm. He could not be played with this class. We have a warlock in my Undermountain campaign. He could not be played with this class. I think the only warlock I have ever interacted with that could work with this was the Hexblade warlock that was in my um, Dragon Heist campaign. Because that's largely what they did. They it really does. It feels like they redesigned it to work for 
melee warlocks, and that's kind of it. It's kind of like they doubled down on what they did with the druid. Mm -hmm. They made a druid that is only useful if they do wild shape all the time. Yeah. They have made a warlock that is only useful if you want to do a hexblade. And if you want to play the, the creepy guy that could never really learn magic other than making a pact with another worldly creature, and you want to play him as a failed wizard that still likes throwing spells, that is not going to be as effective with this warlock as the previous version might have been. I'm upset on behalf of the <laughs> players that like playing the warlock as it exists. There, I think there were some things that were a little weird oh, yeah. about the warlock. It is definitely an oddball class. Yes, but like the, the fact that, okay, you get two or three spells mm -hmm. that you can cast before you're out of spells. Yep. But they're always at the highest level you can cast them. That's that's a good trade-off. That's a fun trade-off. As friend of the show, Brandon Stoddard pointed out when he was doing his analysis of this, that is telling that story of you made a pact to get the shortcut to power. You don't just get piddly spells. If you're going to cast a spell, you're going to cast it at fifth level, no matter what, because you are tuned into this thing that, that gave you power that you shouldn't have. Yeah. Except now that's not the story of it. You have normal spell progression like anyone else, and you're probably not throwing as big a spells as the sorcerer or the wizard. So moving on to the warlock subclass, um, they included the fiend patron. So how does that <laughs> interact with this totally new class that's called a warlock? So your patron spells that you get from being a fiend warlock, you can cast once without using a spell slot. Now, let me clarify that. This is not like the paladin where they're saying all of your bonus spells, you get to cast once without a spell. Of all of the extra spells that you are granted, you may choose one of them once per long rest that you can cast without a spell slot. And this is a net benefit before when um, one of your abilities triggered when you drop someone to zero hit points. Now, if someone drops two zero hit points in your vicinity, you get the benefit from that, which is which makes a lot more sense because if you were to play one of those warlocks that was not a melee type warlock, it was a lot harder to knock someone down to zero hit points for sure yourself. Yeah. Your fiendish resilience now is no longer overcome by magic and silver. You just get resistance. And your Hurl Through Hell ability, which I will say Hurl Through Hell is one of the best Warlock abilities ever. It is just neat to visualize throwing someone into another plane and yanking them out of portal on the other side. You can now, if you burn a fourth level spell slot, you can recharge that ability and use it again. That's terrifying. Yes. <laughs> and I do love that ability. Let's, let's move on to our feelings about this. Right off the bat, I'm going to say that I don't like the change in the story to the class to begin with. I think you should be able to play a Warlock that made a pact with their patron, and that is the only pact they have made. I kind of don't like this. They are a dabbling occultist that has made minor pacts and, and done things all over the place because it kind of limits that person that is like so super desperate that they made a pact in the heat of the moment without thinking about it. In order to play this warlock, the story is you're always, you've always been doing dangerous stuff all the time, and this is just the biggest dangerous thing you do at third level. Yeah, I mean, I like like you said, I kind of like where they've gone with the sorcerer, mm -hmm. but the warlock is like, what? Why? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense, and I don't know how I would change it. What's really weird to me, too, is I don't have a lot of problems with how they redesigned the fiend patron, but I have a story issue thing with fiendish resilience, and that is I liked the idea that something could bypass your resistance with silver. Because it was basically showing you were borrowing like an Archfiend's ability to resist damage. Yeah. And 
this is another one of those things that just feels too utilitarian. Yeah. In the playtest document, they say, well, monsters rarely have uh, silver weapons, so we just eliminated this ability. And it's like, sometimes story is fine. Sometimes something that never happens in a campaign, it's still okay if it could happen to just exist as a thing that could happen, even if it never does. Yeah. Like, everything doesn't have to be designed around it must happen in a campaign, you know, where you get optimum use out of every single ability. So our final class in the document is the wizard. I mean, because let's let's face it, we're both Siskel and Ebert, thumbs down on the warlock. Moving on to the wizard, what have they done to our favorite nerds? So our magic nerds don't get scribe as a class feature. It is now a spell. But, I mean, they always know it. So even if you lose your spellbook, you know how to cast scribe. Any skill that you use with the study action, so there's that subset of things that they put under the study action now that they define study as an action. Anything that you use under the study action, you have advantage once you hit second level. You get modify spell automatically as a spell that you know, which as we talked about in the spell section, it basically lets you do things where you you temporarily tinker with the spell to make it to where like you spend a high enough spell slot, you could, you know, make something to where you don't even have verbal components for it, but it's costing you, you know, to modify. Later on, you get the ability to create spell, which means you can take one of those spells you modified and actually write it in your spell book so that you can memorize the spell in that version. So if you make your your version of Fireball that doesn't have a verbal component, you could use Great Spell to make that just a, a spell, a third level version of Fireball that only you can cast. And again, that is a spell that you use to make a spell when you spell. Spellmaster dropped to 15th and Signature Spell moved to 18th so that, again, they have room for the boon at 20th level. Okay, so what are our thoughts? on these magical bookworms and the changes they've made. Overall, I don't necessarily like the changes they've made, but it does not break the class. It doesn't ruin anything for me. You can still play this version of the wizard almost 99% the same way as you would a regular wizard. Yeah. It's just when you're writing when you're writing something into your spellbook, now you're saying you're casting a spell. In a lot of ways, some of the things with the wizard are semantics. Yeah. And like, I don't like the semantics they've changed, but it doesn't inherently change how the class would play. And I do kind of like that playing around with spells to, you know, like change the parameters of them, because it does feel like the wizard story that sometimes you experiment with spells and write new formulas and stuff like that. So I actually kind of like those. I just don't know why they're spells and not just class abilities. Yeah, I don't know. Because it feels weird to say that I learned the spell as opposed to the wizard can modify spells. That that would work fine as a class feature. <laughs> I kind of like the wizard being good at int-based skills, but at the same time, I don't like them always getting advantage on every int-based skill that they use that's under that study action because it feels like it's kind of stepping on like the bard's toes a little bit. Like Because we have not gotten revised versions of the earlier classes they released, it feels like they're changing things, but not giving us those changes in those other classes, because I still want to know how they're going to fix the bard. And I mean, I'm just in general, I don't like anything that gives you advantage every time you do something, because mm -hmm. it makes advantage feel less special. Mm -hmm. If you just have a class ability that says whenever you do this thing, you always have advantage. But yeah, I, I don't think it, it's one of those things where I don't know that it'll break the game, but it, it makes it feel a little bit less cool when you do get advantage. Yeah. In the 2014 Player's Handbook, they have a subclass for every single school of magic. And they have kind of said they're not going to be doing, like, there's going to be a set number of subclasses for each class. Uh, yeah, I think it's going to be four for each Yeah. Class. 
So they're not going to be able to do that with the wizard. But no. they still gave us the big bada boom, the evoker. So <laughs> let's blow open this subclass. All right. So right off the bat, the evoker gets something that probably all of these classes that were based on one of the schools of magic should have got to begin with, which is you get to write a couple of evocation spells into your spell book for free on top of the other spells that you get. <laughs> It just kind of makes sense that if you study evocation, maybe you picked up a few extra spells. <laughs> now, um, you know, when you use a cantrip and you roll to hit, even if you miss, you do half damage. Oh. So in other words, your cantrips always do at least half damage unless something has evasion. So you are a little bit better with that. Is that specifically on the evocation-based cantrips or just any? Because I mean, like Firebolt and Ray of Frost, I think those are both evocation and those are the two that most people go to um, shocking grasp probably. Uh, but I know there are some that are other schools. So yeah, that's kind of nice because normally, you know, even regular wizards don't get half damage on a, on a roll to hit if they miss. So that's kind of a nice little extra kicker where you're always doing damage and evokers are about damage. So, you know, yes. <laughs> um, you still get the standard sculpt spell, which is probably the signature thing that evokers really have. Like I, I can blow up my enemies without blowing up my friends. That's how good I am. <laughs> I can drop a fireball on them and you'll be fine. <laughs> Meanwhile, the rogue is going, I'm always fine. Um, you do get to add your intelligence bonus to evocation damage eventually, which may not be huge, but, you know, that's not terrible. That would be pretty handy on um, the higher level, second level spell. Um, I'm making gestures of throwing bolts of flame at multiple scorching ray. yes scorching ray scorching ray wow <laughs> and um you still get that ability where you can make you know bigger booms every so often you get your first bigger boom for free but then after you uh you use your first bigger boom you start taking necrotic damage because you're basically draining your life force to blow things up better <laughs> it'd be tempting it'd really be tempting thoughts and feelings on the big booms the Evoker was always a solid choice for wizards. Yeah. If anything, I like that they get a couple extra spells from their actual school because it actually shows that they were studying. It does make me wonder how they're going to handle like the other school subclasses because they were they were interesting. Some of them were pretty cool. Evoker is cool, but like Diviner is one of my favorite fifth edition wizard subclasses. What's the one that can create things? Abjuration? I want to say the one I'm thinking of is Abjuration and they can like create a thing. And like that was way more handy than most people realize no there's a lot of neat ones that go along with these uh school specialized ones i was i've always been a little disappointed with the necromancer because it's not quite as necromancy i, I don't know there should be a, a creepy like overwhelming vibe when you think about necromancers and it was wasn't quite that but that's fine it does make me wonder though which which four they're going to pick because it seems like they're not going to pull subclasses that weren't in the player's handbook they're just going to redesign 2014 subclasses which would mean all four of them that they do for the wizard are going to be school subclasses, even if they don't have all of them in there. So hitting our last point of this discussion on uh, the, the, the playtest documents, um, there wasn't too much that changed in the rules glossary this time around, but there was one very specific rule that has been there since the first playtest that is now gone. Exhaustion is no longer in the glossary, meaning it's defaulted back to use the 2014 version again. What are your thoughts on that change, and why is this a horrible choice? I am more upset about this than losing the Ardling. Exhaustion, exhaustion is a cool concept. I like the idea, 
that there is a way to measure exhaustion. I've liked this since fifth edition started and there are certain levels to it. And if you get past a certain level of exhaustion, you die regardless of your hip. All of that is cool. And I think all of that works if it's used right for the exploration tier of D&D. The problem is what each level of exhaustion does makes it harder to play the game and it turns into a death spiral. And this new version of exhaustion where you were just like, hey, I have three levels of exhaustion, so I'm at negative three on my checks. That's fine. That was great. It was simple. And there was still that idea that if you got to 10, 10 levels of exhaustion, you were going to keel over. It worked really well. <laughs> I'll be completely honest. I started using the new exhausted rules in my game. Mm-hmm. Like we very specifically put it in shard to basically like load up those, you know, if they hit levels of exhaustion, it mm-hmm. automatically applied the negative two or what never one, negative two, whatever, to everything they were doing. And it was it worked. It was simple. It wasn't this cataclysmic death spiral yeah. that you get with the, the 2014 rules, where if you get like I think if you get three levels, you're you're just you're just done. You're you're useless. After your first level of exhaustion, you're already taking disadvantage to all ability checks which isn't attacks and saves so you're still okay for combat but if you're looking at getting exhaustion levels from the exploration tier you're probably going to get more exhaustion levels from exploring because all of your skills are now at disadvantage yeah so yeah it's it's just rough it's way too punitive and it was just simple and easy to use this way I, I don't understand. It was one of the best things no. they put in that first playtest document. And why is it gone? Don't know. What are you doing over there, Watsy? The only thing that I was going to say, I could see where them changing it to 10 levels of exhaustion might have felt too generous. Switching it back to you can have six levels of exhaustion, I would be fine with and still have it work the way it did in the playtest. Right. I mean, honestly, by the time you get to minus four on every roll, yeah. you're already feeling that pinch in that. Oh, yeah. That, that like, crap, I can't do anything because everything is getting this negative four applied to it. I am hoping that they haven't completely scrapped this, but maybe there is some other rule that is getting rewritten. So they want to rewrite how they express it. Yeah. And it's not just that they decided to scrap it. I would just like to say, if you're listening to this podcast and you have written a negative review of how exhaustion worked in the playtest document, please let us know so that we can shun you. Because- <laughs> shame shame yeah i was not happy with that and then of course there's the back door this was the the main thing that came out of um that came out of the rules glossary but also technically we also lost the ranger or the two weapon fighting yeah or as because that got folded into a weapon ability as well yeah i mean technically you could get weapon mastery through a feat that they introduced there but i still think you need to have some other classes get it and the problem is i i kind of don't think they are going to give it to rangers or paladins or rogues because weapon mastery is the thing they have defined for warrior yeah just like they don't want to give expertise to anybody that isn't an expert and what bothers me about that is that is saying that using a weapon really well is not part of the story of a ranger or a paladin using magic to enhance your combat ability is your story And that is a change from how rangers and paladins have felt in the past, where they have been competent with weapons, even without using spells. Anyway, let's, I I, I want to, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Let's get out of here. No time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. So now we're going to do our downtime research. 
every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to the listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts, but it will always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience. So for me, go see Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. <laughs> now, I know some of you are going, Ange, this is supposed to be a D&D recommendation. Well, it is. <laughs> because the Guardians movies are about as close to perfection as you can get for a representation <laughs> of what a party in a role-playing game looks like. I'm a sucker for all of the MCU. I, I really am. They are my jam. I enjoy them. But the Guardians movies, since the since volume one, has always hit that, that pitch-perfect blend of what a party looks like, acts like, does, and goes through in their adventures. And mm -hmm. if you can, for your, your GMing or your playing, if you can look at it and take that and apply it to your games, it will... It'll just make everything so much better. I even had a Guardians moment in a game where basically the entire party held hands to defeat the big bad evil guy. <laughs> yes, I know it's science fiction, but it's seriously, go see Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 and think about how you can apply that type of storytelling to your GMing and you will be, you will be grateful. You will thank me for this. <laughs> it's also a really good movie. I, just to dovetail on what you're saying there, I think a really relevant part of that is I have seen people say before, like, you know, I don't want to group with a cat folk and, uh, you know, uh, you know, all of these these strange other species. And Guardians of the Galaxy shows you how you can have like an anthropomorphic animal and a plant person and all of these very strange, disparate people and still get a lot of emotion and connection out of all of those characters. This is the perfect RPG game party group. <laughs> All right. So my suggestion is also going to be a little off the wall because, folks, it's been a weird, weird last few months. It's been a weird 2023, actually. Mm -hmm. um, we're five months into this and things just keep getting weirder. So currently, the Writers Guild of America is on strike and several streamers have rushed, rushed stories out to the media outlets saying that, hey, the scripts are done for the show, so we're going to go into production with it. Which is kind of silly because you need writers on the set who change scripts. So these productions should not be rushing ahead and there's going to be problems with them. This, these aren't good stories. People haven't finished writing a season just because they turned the scripts in. It's still an ongoing process. You don't 100% know if a scene is going to work until the actors are trying it on set. And sometimes it has to go back to the writers to fix some things. Absolutely. So my recommendation this time around is to pick up a book or an audiobook and skip the streaming for a little bit, long enough to read or listen to something. You could get, for example, The Silmarillion, The Fall of Numenor, Unfinished Tales, or Fire and Blood. I may have picked these books because they're relevant to, uh, you know, saying House of the Dragon and uh, Rings of Power are both going to film without writers on the sets. To be clear, the WGA has not asked anyone to boycott anything at this point in time. But knowing that people are fighting to get paid what they're worth, maybe it's not a bad time to remind yourself that there's other forms of entertainment and it may be worth the wait to see your favorite streaming shows done the way they should be done because real people then will be able to make ends meet and get compensated for their work. You know what show has paused on production, even though they have all their scripts written? Mm. Stranger Things. Exactly. I saw that post. That was awesome. I was very happy to see that. This is one of those things where I'm not going to necessarily shun the shows that I like that keep moving forward, but you will see a dip in quality. If you've ever wondered what, what this looks like, 
watch the second season of Heroes or Transformers <laughs> Revenge of the Fallen. Oh, yeah. Or don't watch them because I can't in good conscience tell you to really do that. <laughs> or Heroes. It was so, the first season was so good. And then they just like, what? <sighs> just left turn into <laughs> WTF. Moving out of here, we are happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network. So we want to give a shout out to another MMP show. If you are enjoying our show, please consider checking out Misdirected Mark Plays. Phil, Chris, Bob, and Jerry play and discuss a campaign they've created and are playing. Now, instead of just hearing them talk about the theory of gaming and game mastering of the games they're playing, you can actually hear what they do at the table. It's come full circle in their exploratory play series, MM Plays. We have used up all of our resources and by howdy have we. So I think it is time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you. We hope you'll go exploring with us when we start up our next adventure. 